0: Hello, product innovators. Today we learn from a lecturer at the Stanford Institute of Design on the importance of planning for ambiguity when going through physical product development.
1: You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast.
0: Now, onto the show. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Kelly Schmoody to the show. Kelly is a dual degree graduate and a lecturer at Stanford University at D School. She has also worked at IDO and on product development of many hardware products, including designing and running her own product called Perfect Fit, one of the world's leading professional dance shoes. She is also the co-author of the design book, Navigating Ambiguity. Today, Kelly is gonna share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can understand ambiguity and unexpected circumstances within the product development journey and how to maximize the value of your product through prototyping and testing before going into manufacturing. Now, onto the episode. Hey, Kelly, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Kevin. Nice to I- meet you.
0: Nice to meet you as well. I understand you're getting quite used to this whole audio world. You just finished recording an entire audiobook of your recent publication.
2: That's right. That's right. We spent a whole day doing the audiobook recording of navigating ambiguity. So I've been practicing listening to my voice and getting used to the weirdness of that. But it's been really, really fun.
0: Yeah, there's a whole other world. A lot of devils in the details in oh, audio recording, sure. which you don't realize <laughs> until you're in those situations, right?
2: Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Definitely. There were certain phrases as we were reading them that it's like, Hmm, didn't think about what, j- what a tongue twister that would be to say out loud.
0: <laughs> Give us a bit of a background on how you got to where you are today.
2: Yeah. So I'd say I grew up being both kind of right-brained and left-brained. My favorite subjects growing up in school were math and also art. <laughs> um, and so was always intrigued about how I would be able to combine these things. I was considering a career in architecture Uh, perhaps civil engineering. My my dad's a civil engineer. And it wasn't until I got to college that I discovered a a degree program called product design. Um, I went to Stanford, went through the product design program there. And it was this amazing blend of both of those pieces, kind of the thinking about how to solve problems and getting into the details of, of solving them, um, from a real mechanical, intuitive understanding way, as as well as the more expressive, artistic elements of design, and then this third piece, which really spoke to me and my personality, but I hadn't yet put together, which is around human-centered design. So, how are you really always designing for human needs? Um, how are you letting that both serve as the initial inspiration for what you might create, seeing that inspiration comes from outside yourself, and then letting that serve as your guide throughout uh, your creative process. And so I feel super fortunate that I Kind of stumbled into to that program, and it opened my eyes to what a career in design and, and entrepreneurship could be. And from that experience, uh, went on to work in design consulting for a bit, and then eventually came back to Stanford for uh, some more studying, and then ultimately teaching at the D School. And in parallel, launched a company from a product that I invented using methods that I learned in the design program.
0: That's amazing. I'm really excited to have you on the show because you've got the academic experience mm. going through all this schooling at Stanford, as well as being in the consulting world, but also starting your mm. own product.
2: Yeah. A perfect yeah. fit yeah. for
0: ballet, which is yeah. a product that's sold to can be the highest and <laughs> most picky customer, which is the best sure. of the best in the world at a yeah. particular sport. Yeah. So yeah. it's incredible that you've got both of those pieces of Intel, as well as working with David Kelly, obviously mm. from IDO and uh, the founder of D School. So you've got a lot of experience working both in the academic setting and the school Hmm. of hard knocks in the real world, yeah, yeah. (laughs) which is, it's really exciting. So I'm glad that you put that book together on navigating ambiguity, which is the title of the book and is obviously the premise of the book. Talk a bit about the concept of ambiguity Mm -hmm. and how ambiguity applies to designing hardware.
2: Yeah, great. Well, first off, we had no idea when we started writing this book that what was around the corner. We started working on it in summer 2019. So not knowing a global pandemic would be upon us all shortly thereafter and just how much we'd all be thrown into and have a lot of ambiguity thrust upon us all. So, I mean, we really see ambiguity at the core of creative work. Anytime you're coming up with an idea and you want to come up with something that's new to the world, you have to wrestle with and be in this sometimes uncomfortable space of multiple right answers, multiple possibilities, multiple framings of a problem, multiple ways to solve a problem. And so we wanted to write a book to help people understand ambiguity better and think about ways to actually leverage and navigate it in in helpful and productive ways. And so I think, you know, being a a product person and a physical product design person myself, I I can definitely say that I've wrestled a ton with ambiguity. Um, certainly with Perfect Fit, with other hard goods that I've worked on in teaching, and that it is essential to go to this place uh, of not knowing, of being able to hold multiple interpretations, multiple ideas in parallel.
0: So before this episode, I made sure to go to the Oxford Dictionary and Mm. get a specific definition. And here's what it says. (laughs) What does it it say? Ambiguity is the quality of being open to more than one interpretation. Mm -hmm. how do Mm -hmm. you see that definition or how does that play into your definition of the word, given that you're one of the world's leading experts on this term, <laughs> definitely one of the world's, if not the leading expert on how ambiguity applies to design. Design. So, how do you? I'll see take. The
2: I'll take that. Yeah, not not an expert on ambiguity, but I'd say an explorer and fellow navigator of people who are curious about about the role of ambiguity. Yeah. So, I think you know that that definition's right. Um, what's really at the core of it is this idea of multiplicity, dualities, being able to hold multiple interpretations at the same time. And from, you know, in, in product development, I really think about that as is, is two pieces. So one side is framing or understanding what the problem really is, right? You might come into a challenge, you know, be be given a design brief that's around designing a better bike mount for a car or designing a better coffee mug, right? And it's always useful to step back and say well why are you doing that right what's what are the higher level needs behind that is is this really the right problem to be solving is there another maybe more impactful problem that you could address and so that's kind of where delving into the messy space of human needs which there are, you know infinite amount of needs requires you know grappling with ambiguity coming in with this humility that you might not exactly know the true nature of the problem and then once you've made an initial kind of put a stake in the ground with here's our point of view here's what we think the the nature of the problem is that we're going after you know how how do you go about solving it right so how do you explore what the right answer might be right solution might be through prototyping through testing through getting feedback from people and you know cyclical that that helps inform whether like is this the right problem to be solving from from the get-go? So, you know, on both sides, just a ton of messiness, right? Of <laughs> what, what is the right problem to be solving? Again, having that humility to, to step back and question whether, you know, you, you really are tackling the right thing from the start. And then also the openness to, you know, take the time to explore things that you think might not work, right? It's, it's much safer to stay in the space of like, well, we're pretty sure this is going to work. So we're, we're going to you know go ahead with, with producing this. So ambiguity really and holding ambiguity, using ambiguity is really right at the core.
0: It's very helpful to understand the different elements of how ambiguity works. And what I'm really eager to do on the show is to apply it specifically to your product that you worked on and how yeah. you went through those challenges, but yeah. bringing in some of the academic best practices sure. as well and how that applies to building Hardware specifically, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. so much of this is very relevant, especially in that prototyping phase, which is so critically Mm -hmm. important. So, Mm -hmm. if we jump back a little bit, what is some of the academics saying about ambiguity? Where does the human mind go? And what are we missing? Where's the opportunity there when you open your mind up to some of the concepts that are in your book?
2: So yeah, it's, it's really interesting, Kevin. I mean, definitely our brains are not wired to like being in uncertainty, right? We've evolved to know that certainty, recognizing patterns, knowing what to expect is going to help us survive, right? Going back to our, you know, caveman days. So one study that we talk about in the book um, was a study where um, participants were being asked to touch different digital rocks. So think about like a video game interface it had different digital rocks in front of them and they it would touch one of them and uncover what was underneath. And if it could be nothing or it could be a snake, a digital snake, and they received then a very uh, real electrical shock like on the back of their hand. And they designed this game to kind of keep participants guessing. So sometimes they would let them kind of feel like they were starting to recognize like, okay, I get what the pattern is. And then other times they break that. Right. And what they found was that stress peaked when uncertainty peaked. So it was, you know, I think that the headline there is it's more stressful to not know what's coming than to even know something bad is coming.
0: Wow. Yeah.
2: So we're not primed to, you know, want to be in this place of not knowing what's what's coming. And that's where I think it's, you know, really a, a muscle that needs to be developed over time. It's a, it's, it's a skill. I think it takes a lot of patience of going through many cycles of design, trusting that going to this place is re- ultimately rewarding and, you know, yields good things, these, these new ideas but that, yeah, it's uncomfortable. And I, you know, even for us as, you know, seasoned designers, I'm sure you could say like, it, it still is uncomfortable. It's not that it ever gets easy, but I think there's an understanding with time that, and, and a trust that, that something good can come of it. That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. How
0: can you apply that to, design a better product whether you're a designer or whether you're working with a design team or whether you're just in the ideation phase and you're trying to flush out the idea mm-hmm. how can mm-hmm. you apply some of the principles and the things that you've learned about ambiguity and human nature to improve mm-hmm. the design process overall mm-hmm. for hardware
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's a great question you know a headline idea and point of view we came up with in writing the book was seeing navigating ambiguity as as a balancing act so there's never going to be a five-step process. There's never going to be a cut-and-dried formula that that helps you navigate ambiguity, and instead, um, trusting that you need to be constantly adapting your process, considering what the work needs in the moment, um, as opposed to kind of defaulting to what you've always done, uh, what's wo- always worked in the past. And so there's this this kind of just being hyper-tuned to and responsiveness to what the work needs. At a high level, we kind of break down a difference between acting and adapting. So this is really high level terms, but things you know, in the, in the acting camp are taking purposeful initiative, right? What are the things we can do? What are the tools that we can apply? Um, all of our engineering skills, prototyping, testing, ethnographic research, the things that we know that uh, we can apply and help us yield results. And on the other hand, adapting, so being open, not just, not just being responsive to what gusts of wind might come and knock your sailboat over and how you have to, to shift, but really actively working to kind of hold open the set of, the set of possibilities, right? To be able to, um, you know, maybe it means for a stretch, you're, you're prototyping multiple things in parallel, right rather than putting kind of all your eggs in one basket and continuing to like do this that that you're actively, you know, prototyping multiple ideas in parallel. So, at a high level, right, thinking about what when's a moment when okay, applying a tool, using my past knowledge is going to help me versus, you know, when is the time maybe I need to step back, consider what the work needs, adapt our process and do something different.
0: Let's uh, pull on the thread of prototyping a bit more. Yeah, you obviously yeah, yeah. went through a lot of that in oh building gosh, your yeah. product perfect yeah. fit. Yeah. How have you seen being ambiguous, exploring different options and prototyping, uh, how did that add value to making a better product and of course a better business sure. as a result yeah, out of it? Yeah,
2: sure, sure. So, I want to set up a little bit what uh what a point shoe is <laughs> help listeners kind of visualize uh, what this is. So it's a special type of dance shoe that allows ballet dancers to stand really on, on the tips of their toes. Um, it's not at all like a soft ballet slipper or a sock. They're actually quite rigid. But when you go to stand on point, we were we were not designed as humans to stand this way. And so it's a lot of force applied over a really, really small area. And so my basic thought and question was, basic physics, pressure equals force over area is there a way when you're standing on point that you could increase the surface area over which the force is applied so that you could decrease the pressure? So rather than getting pressure buildups at wherever, you know, like your bunion area or any other toe is kind of taking a lot of the load, could you even that out by by filling in that space? I started prototyping with a lot of different materials and was doing a lot of early prototypes um, on myself and on my own feet. And pretty early on, came across thermoformable EVA foam as a possible material. I was just like, this is it. This is going to be like the it material. Um, It's just so cool. It's going to be this cool crossover application, you know, from this other sports fields, bring a little high-tech into into ballet. So I started, you know, doing prototypes with it on myself and other dancers. And I really went deep (laughs) with this foam. It really took, I'd say, about a year of doing this testing and and waiting with like dozens of dancers. The 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 punchline was like, I think it's better, (laughs) which was not at all, not at all what I was looking for. You know, I was looking for something that would feel transformative in how what the what the experience of standing on point and dancing on point felt like. And so this was like this really hard lesson and kind of falling in love with your prototypes, seeing something and being like, this is going to be the it solution. And even if you're getting initial positive feedback, like really just, you know, putting your eggs in that basket. Yeah. I wasted a lot of time and money and you know, uh, energy and uh, in, in that direction. And, um, you know, a year into it was like, I need to go back to the drawing board, you know, and c- consider other things. And I had overlooked this other material, which is what ultimately came to be used in the in the product. It's a two-part silicone rubber material, polyvinyl siloxane. Kevin, you got to think about, you know, classical ballet studios. It's incredibly athletic, but it's in, in the realm of fine art and a you know, world of aesthetics. And, and so, you know, I think a big part of, it's like I was juggling all these things um, from The actual, you know, mechanical needs around like what is going to be moldable and fill just the spaces, not create too much tightness. Those kinds of needs to like cultural fit. Like, is there something that would be accepted in the ballet world? And then a third piece was like, I knew I wanted to make something that would be mass customizable, that would allow it to scale and allow any dancer anywhere to have a custom fit. And so, trying to triangulate between all those things is really hard and because of the uncertainty around the the sort of cultural fit, I hadn't really done due diligence with prototyping with the silicone material, but I kind of switched gears how I did testing. I went back to dancers just with like a really kind of messy, messy prototype and had them try the silicone in their shoe, like immediately just got different responses from them of, wow, this actually feels really cool. Like I still feel connected to the ground, but I don't feel the same pain I feel when I'm standing on point. And so from there continued to to do user testing in a different way I switched it up and started doing small workshops with dancers like a dozen dancers at a time, having them all kind of make and mold their shoe inserts at the same time and you know was was getting great feedback that way, learning lots of things about, instructional design and how to guide people through the process as well so i think i just i learned a lot of hard lessons around prototyping prototype early prototype often never stop prototyping (laughs) some of the takeaways there really to help get through that ambiguity of designing the right solution
0: prototyping is so powerful
2: and prototyping
0: is one of those things i think especially as a hardware startup if it's their first time going through product design and product development one of the things that i find in ambiguity that is really important for a new startup to understand that isn't in the design world is that part of great design is allowing your designers to explore the unknown, Mm
2: -hmm. to be
0: experimental, to take one step back so that they can take two steps forward. And that seems to be very much what happened with you. Eventually you had to take some steps back, back back to the drawing board, explore Unknowns that you weren't that comfortable with to try and see how your eventual market would react, which inevitably ended up leading to the right solution.
2: Yeah. Right. Even though it was different
0: than what you thought was the known solution, which is so powerful, this whole concept of ambiguity.
2: That's exactly right.
0: So, in terms of prototyping, what are some of the lessons that you learned that you could apply to startups that are going through the process of doing their first prototype or their first few Mm. prototypes? What did Mm. you learn? both from academics in terms of this book and ambiguity, but also in terms of the prototypes that you went through that you would help guide a new startup through that process with?
2: You know, one framework we show students around prototyping is seeing the function of prototyping change over time. So early on in in your process, you should be really be prototyping to learn. It's like for inspiration, right? It's it's almost like building to think, building to brainstorm, building to generate solutions, right? And not being shy about generating lots and lots of ideas. So sort of the ratio between ideas and then the number of people that you're testing with is really high right so a lot of ideas and showing them to a, a small number of users and then you kind of move towards as you're kind of honing in on your solution moving to a phase of really defining the problem getting into the details you're starting to test it with with more people and then ultimately you get to like a validation phase right where you're really doing more beta testing and you're you're testing it really at scale but seeing how yeah, the function of prototyping really evolves. A lot of what we teach at the D School and in product design program is really the value of that really early stage prototyping to open up the solution space. Be not precious <laughs> with your prototypes. Um, show users multiple prototypes. You know, something we always tell students like. Of course, people are going to respond politely and think of nice things to say when you show them your, your one shiny thing and, and ask what they think about it, as opposed to eh, throw five things on the table, see what they pick up and why, ask them a question about it, you know, let, let their interest drive how they interact with prototypes.
0: Seems like there's a common thread to all this, both what you're teaching and your experience with the shoes. It comes back to feedback.
2: Oh yeah. Really getting oh, the sure, appropriate
0: sure. things in front of people to get yeah. good quality yeah. feedback. And yeah. of course then yeah. listening to the feedback yeah. and trying to reapply yeah. it yeah. into your product.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. And see, you know, seeing that not as again validation on oh, checking the box, like do users like it? But really seeing that is like this is this is your opportunity to be in this person's mind, to be in their world to learn from them what is it about this product that is interesting to them? And again, is it is it something else? does another idea get sparked from that and being open to that not going in with the script of you know, I need to ask these five questions about the product again, really early you know early stage being open being open to that. Um, and then of course, as you know you, you get more towards the validation phase. You can get, you can ask those types of questions, but early on, just really staying open. It's hard. It's really hard. You know, when you come in and you're sure this is, this is your horse in the race. This is the one that's going to win.
0: Great insight because it's so important, really, no matter what the product is to get feedback. But like you're saying, not just at the end of the road, but mm-hmm. as you're going through the process mm-hmm. at every and stage, that early yeah. prototyping, the early prototyping mm-hmm. is really key. A lot of folks, especially, when they're trying to get something to production, which is the goal, especially mm-hmm. for a lot of the clients at Macro yeah. Design, they right. really they know what they want, they know what they want to build. They just want our designers and engineers to design, engineer, get through prototyping, mm-hmm. and get it mm-hmm. produced. Mm-hmm. The reality is, you have these magic moments along the way.
2: Oh yeah, where yeah. you can
0: take even that first rough yeah. prototype, start for to get sure. a bit of feedback. You can do it confidentially under non-disclosure, whatever else, mm-hmm. small focus mm-hmm. groups, friends mm-hmm. and family, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. you have access to mm-hmm. as as mm-hmm. the inventor, the mm-hmm. innovator. Yeah, and then. Put those lessons into the design so that as you move to your next prototype, not only are you tweaking and refining and perfecting the mm-hmm. elements that other people think could improve it, you're also implementing some of the feedback, which could really improve the product in ways that you didn't foresee as you were developing or as you came up yeah. with that original vision.
2: Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, I think you nailed it, Kevin. It's it's not a step, a one-time step in the process and a check the box. Like if you're really leveraging prototyping and user feedback, it's, it's a mindset and it's something that should be prevalent and integrated throughout a design process. So I, I, I firmly believe that I've, prototyping is still very much part of perfect fit today, you know, in in different ways, you know, it might be now thinking about how do we structure an ambassador program and create community and get the word out about, about perfect fit, but still taking a a prototype mindset to that being open, trying things, trying multiple things in parallel. Yeah. It's a mindset. You got it. It's the only way to live.
0: (laughs) It seems like there's this overarching theme that you really need to allow your designers and engineers to explore And I Mm -hmm. mentioned that earlier on the show, but it's something Mm. that we keep seeing on this Mm. episode, both academically Mm. and from your Mm. experience, but Mm. with lots of other hardware inventors as well that have had highly successful products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You really have to even think about it just in nuts and bolts. Your budget, if you think you're going to get to production Mm -hmm. at a whatever Mm -hmm. $100,000 budget, Mm. you need to raise that X thousand dollars for some exploration, for some creativity, for for some feedback, and not expect that you're going to have a linear path yeah, from for idea sure. to production. Yeah. yeah for you sure. You need some feedback loops in
1: there, right?
2: If you take the time at the beginning and no time always feels precious, but if you really take that time in the beginning, then it pays off huge at the end, right? If you if you spend that time to really invest and explore, then it's it becomes very cost-effective in in the long run.
0: Yeah. I mean, most people don't realize that the truth is at the end of the day, you're investing in a venture that's going to be around for many, many, many years, yeah. potentially, right, right, right. right? It could be a hundred right. years if right, the product's right, right. good enough. So yeah. the setbacks are difficult. Everybody wants to move in a linear fashion. You really want to every month feel like you've progressed hundred percent in the right mm-hmm. direction. Mm-hmm. And it's very mm-hmm. difficult back to human nature to take mm-hmm. a step back. A yeah. lot of the times, so, though, and this comes back to failure theory as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Failure is valuable because you learned something not mm-hmm. to do. Oh, yeah. Failure is right. full of lessons yeah. and implications. So yeah. breaking yeah. prototypes is fantastic. Oh, yeah. yeah, You're learning right. what doesn't right. work so right. that it doesn't become much costlier down the road. So as you take this time to discover these things, mm-hmm. know that that time is generally money and time well spent.
2: Oh yeah, those are things yeah. where
0: you are really creating value for the long term, yeah, long with term. a small sacrifice in the short term.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, in in navigating ambiguity, we talk about how when ocean explorers go down and they're you know exploring a, a sunken ship or something else on the seafloor, and they discover something interesting, they. Drop a pin in kind of the first grid if they've like kind of gridded the area that they're going to explore, but they don't they don't come bu- come back up right away. It's like no, we're going to keep cons- you know exploring everything else and all the rest of the grid first because you can always come back to the first grid. You can always come back to the first idea, right? So it's not to say ignore your first ideas. Like maybe they are the ones that you end up going with. Like that could be. Like you can put them in a parking lot, but they'll be there. We'll be there, you know. So take the time to explore the rest of that landscape a little bit more and use all of your oxygen when you're down there and, you know, stay in that unknown murky place a little bit longer. because You just don't know what you might find.
0: Well, that's a great anecdote to finish it off. I really appreciate all your insight, Kelly. Thanks again for being on yeah, the show. Thank and you, Google Kevin. We'll talk soon.
2: Okay. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Designs, 4 Design Studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.